Today is the 11th of November, 2014, and this is episode 161. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. What cryptocurrency enables is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts, just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. Today on Let's Talk Bitcoin, we're joined by Tom Ding and Daniel Pellet. Tom is the co-founder and CEO over at Coinify. Thanks, Tom, for being here. Sure. Thanks for having me here, Adam. Daniel Pellet is the CEO and co-founder of the GEMS messaging service and accompanying coin project. Hey, Daniel. Hi. Tom, can you tell us the story of Coinify? The thing that we kind of started Coinify is basically to try and to solve the crowdfunding problem with the Bitcoin technology both using Bitcoin currency as well as the technology that kind of underlying, uh, you know, Bitcoin. We as a platform basically trying to s- provide a couple of innovations in, in this space. I'll try to briefly list them out. When we look at this space, when most of the altcoins or new type of coins or even dApps, when they raise crowdfunding, they typically do on their own. Now, there's a lot of kind of the overheads that they bear, including regulatory legal costs, as well as the software development, permission and all that stuff. So we look in space and say, why don't we know we, there should be a common platform that could solve these pain points instead of trying to reinvent the wheel on their own every time. So that's the first thing kind of we do. On the technology side, we have a very easy to use platform, one click purchase, and then we also have a wallet that basically allow user to very easy to manage their tokens. It's basically a, a reskinned version of counter wallet, but more tuned for the crowdfunding purpose. And the second thing we look at is, you know, many of the projects, while good intentioned, may or may not deliver what they promised. And from the user side, there's also a big trust problem. Even on Kickstarter, you know, fairly mature platform, I think the data is like probably over 20 or 30% of the project that actually got funded doesn't really deliver what user wanted or just, you know, not deliver anything. When people fund a project on our platform, their money does not go to developers directly. Fund is not controlled by us either, but instead we will have two arbitrators that control two of the keys, and then we have the developer control the one key. And then all the fund vesting will actually happen on a milestone base. So every time when you deliver a milestone from the product developer side, the arbitrator will step in and say, okay, looks like you guys have delivered the milestone one, and therefore you are eligible for the 25% of the funds. Now, over time, that could become evolved into a community-based voting. So you could say, you know, instead of having two arbitrators, you would have the full community to vote on whether the developer has a method expectation. So that's the other cool thing about, you know, solving it really the trust problem. And the third part of that is when you look at most of the DAF space today, I think in most of the projects, not necessarily a lot of the projects are really have true innovation there. So we kind of spend a lot of time doing due diligence work, trying to make sure that a project has a solid team, has a really impactful idea and has a well-designed token economy. We're trying to filter out these noises for the users. And the last part, I guess, is also trying to bring some liquidity to these DAP tokens. Uh, I think many of the users obviously bought the token for their own use. There are the people who wanted to trade. And uh, right now, the decentralized exchange market is still fairly illiquid. So we try to partner with a couple of exchanges, which we'll probably announce in a few weeks, to bring these DAPs that we onboard onto the exchange markets. So these, I think, four things are the things that we're trying to innovate and help these dApps to able to better crowdfund, but also really solving a trust problem for a user. So the trust problem is kind of a bi-directional thing, as you've kind of identified here. I really like your solution, by the way. 
it introduces centralized points of trust, but you're already basically doing that. The question is, who are you centralizing the trust on? In a conventional crowdfunding situation or conventional, you know, cryptocurrency crowdfunding situation, you're essentially giving the money straight to the development team, like you said. And so if they're like, if they're, so once that's done, well, you know, if they wind up failing, that money's all gone. So this is, this is a very interesting approach to limit the risk. So the refunds are given. If a company, you know, doesn't wind up making milestones and it looks like the project's going to peter out. Yeah. So we have a couple the first, you know, choice is obviously for the arbitrator to step in, say, okay, you guys haven't met the fund requirements, you probably should work harder before you're asking for more money. There are obviously in some cases where you actually they are making good progress, they just need a little bit more funding or time to figure that out. So I think there's some room for negotiation. But let's say, you know, arbitrator, you know, can agree with developers. And what comes in next, you have a second arbitrator, and finally, uh, you could have a final resort to the community to say, okay, let's do a public voting. And you obviously can do that today already with counterparty. You could just issue a dividend token that basically allow people to vote. Are they doing what you wanted? And if the community has unilaterally agreed that, no, they're not doing their job, well, then probably they should just refund. So the crowdfund in this circumstance is actually really only the first step. So this is actually, there's a huge moral hazard in crowdfunding. It's very difficult to tell when someone is asking you for money because they really, really, really believe in their good idea or if they're asking you for money because they really think that you're going to believe in their idea and will give you money for it, and then they don't necessarily need to do anything. So this makes it so that the fundraising is really more just like proving that there is, in fact, a market for this plan that you've put together. And then in delivery, oh yeah, I, I think that's brilliant. That's very interesting and a good approach. So when did that become the model? Was that always the plan? Because we've talked about this privately before, and I don't remember that part. Yeah, I mean, we've been keeping looking at different solutions. I think multi-signature solution, we have a couple more exciting features that are going to come. Uh, but yeah, multi-sig being a very key part of that. Right now, obviously, what multi-sig can do is fairly limited by what Bitcoin script can do. But over time, you know, we're fairly platform agnostic. We're on counterparty right now. But, you know, as counterparty grow or a new platform comes up, you know, we can definitely use some more sophisticated smart contract capability to extend that, you know, trust problem. You know, you could have something like, uh, let's say the developer, when they hold a token, you could also have a vesting schedule, which says, let's say, as a counterparty core dev, I don't receive all my XCP at once, 5%. But instead, you know, well, based on my work, or it could be based on time. You know, these kind of more advanced capabilities could come as well. So the other side of the problem is the token, because the token actually has to make sense. It has to be useful. And as we've seen more of these tokens come out, it's actually become very difficult to tell what is a good token and what is not, because like 10,000 of one coin is the equivalent of one of another coin. And there's like, there's no set of rules or really standardizations. How do you look at these tokens when people are talking about creating them? I think uh, a big part of our job is really to help advise and a whole screen. What is a token economy that actually makes sense? You know, many of the dApps are actually pretty, you know, valuable, but their token just doesn't have that connection or strong correlation with the network value. And that can be a problem in many cases. So in, in that kind of cases, we try to look at a couple of things, uh, whether token economy makes sense. First of all, it is like the basic things, you know, make it. Let's say you have a 50% pre-sale, a 40%, you know, airdrops, and then let's say 10% of developers. And so you kind of have a mix of that. And usually the ratio that we think are kind of work better is the developers that hold a, a non-necessary majority that their longer term incentive is connected. It's not like they just take the BDC and spend the money, but they have no long term stake. So we want them to actually have a long term stake. That is kind of contradictory to the conventional wisdom that the developer people don't want them to pre-mod. 
I think in, in, in a kind of startup analogy is you want the founders to hold a significant stake. In, in DAP's case, I think they may not have to hold a majority stake, uh, but more likely a you know, 10% or 20% kind of range. Uh, the other part of that is you also usually want a mix of long-term incentivization for user behavior, which usually happens in a way of typical mining or you know mining as in a broad sense, not necessarily computational work, but some kind of airdropping distribution mechanism. And then you have the last part of that token scheme, which is usually you know distributed, sold uh, during the crowd sale period. So these are like the basic mix we look at. They're a good balancer. The second part of that, we look at what's the base value of that token. In the BDC world, Usually the only value or main value of the token is a medium exchange. And that makes it extremely volatile because you're having tying a function that they're directly connected to its pricing. Now, in the DAP world, I think the good news is usually the functional value is a fairly stable demand. Using storage as an example, the whole enterprise storage market is a fairly established market, right? There's a strong fundamental need for it. In that kind of cases, we look at supply and demand. What is a storage need for the next two or three years? And then we look at basically evaluate as a startup, if this was a Dropbox, how much market share could they possibly take? Obviously, this is a big range of estimates. But then we at least get an idea of if they are doing well, the basic assumption, uh, what kind of market revenue could they capture if they were a company? And then we try to break down that revenue and say, okay, now this is not exactly company because the tokening to the velocity of token movement and say, okay, so they got this exchange volume. And if there's a reasonable money movement speed, what might be the token pricing range? These kind of factors. We try to do a basic financial modeling of the token in different scenarios and try to be very transparent about the information to the user and let them decide, is that a good backing decision? Coinify isn't uh, isn't taking a percentage. How is Coinify planning on making money in this? Just say for the first six months, we're taking zero fees. Um, uh, and I think right now, this is probably the best decision uh, for us, mainly because we think the whole ecosystem is really small. Uh, if you look at like the interesting dApps across the world, I'm not sure there's any more than 20 dApps that is actually kind of really exciting and interesting. Of course, applying a fairly high standard selected criteria, but uh, that's kind of what I'm aware of. So in that kind of cases, we don't want to extract too much value from a very fragile and smaller system. We'd rather spend a lot more time to roll that. So yeah, I think it's an best decision to, to not actually take a fee out of it. But over time, we as, as the ecosystem grows, as long as we are actually creating some value, something that people trust and believe, I don't think we will have a problem of extracting value later on. And Tom, did you raise money for this project? You know, how long, when did you guys get started formally? And, you know, how has that gone? We initially started uh, in March this year. So I quitted my previous corporate job with eBay PayPal, which is now split after I left in March and then working for basically this crowdfunding idea. We started experimenting with a few different verticals. We were initially very much looking deep into games vertical. Then I kind of realized the game may not be actually the best use cases, even though it looks like it, it was. But the main reason was really being that I think game has a fairly developed virtual ecosystem of its own, and it doesn't seem to be directly benefits hugely from Bitcoin world. So we kind of move on to more decentralized applications, which is right now our focus. I think part of that is, I think decentralized applications, even though it's a tiny and very niche market, when you look at its potential, I think this is really something that were just not possible before Bitcoin. Versus if you look at other type of things that you can crowdfund, let's say equity or debt financing, even though Bitcoin kind of makes it more convenient, but they're not really something radically new. 
I guess my personal interest has always been looking for something more radical. And the DAC or the DAP type of thing is just something that is so powerful that has a complete, you know, paradigm shift on the way how we look at companies having a larger social impact. Sorry to answer your question about funding. We, we raised two seed rounds. The first round being about half a million dollars from the angel arm of Sequoia China and another venture called Tsuyuan Venture Funds. The second round comes from IDG, Brock Pierce, uh, and his Angela Syndicate, and then a few more other funds. So it totaled about $1.6 million. There used to be two types of crowdfunding. There used to be reward-based crowdfunding and equity-based crowdfunding. And for the last six months or so, I've kind of had it in my head that there's actually a third type that, that I think you're, uh, that, you know, I think you're pushing down the path of, and, and so are a lot of companies in this space called token-based crowdfunding. So can you talk to me about what the token represents in these systems and, you know, whether or not, so you said clearly it sounds like you don't feel like it's an equity. Can you please kind of explain that logic? I think uh, to, to be just more com- completing your list, I think traditionally you have debt financing, equity financing, uh, reward-based crowdfunding. So you have three different categories. I think we probably most likely is closer to reward-based crowdfunding, but I would more consider it a force category or a 3B category, which is token-based crowdfunding. So the token itself has some correlation with the success of the network if it is well-designed. But on the other hand, it doesn't fall into equity or DAPT kind of role. You know, traditionally, equity, for example, has a very direct connection to the value created. If I got $1 revenue, how much of that will be split into my shareholders? Whereas in a DAP, really using what you're funded, it has kind of a due property, I guess, which is the other thing that I kind of mentioned, I guess, in a previous episode about DAP. It has this app connection to the value created, but at the same time, it's also served as a payment token. So now you're kind of blurring the line between the user and, and the shareholder in a traditional sense. There is something that is kind of a hybrid, but it's none of above. So GEMS is the first project that's launching on the Coinify platform. It looks like the uh, fundraiser, when, when's that going to get started? Currently, we're talking uh, with Coinify to have the crowdfunding start during uh, mid-November. But obviously, we're paying uh, very close attention to the regulation status. So that can may delay it a little bit. So, Daniel, tell me about GEMS. What, what is this project? I've been hearing actually a lot of people talking about it, so clearly it's starting to get a little bit of traction. But what's, what's the idea here? The idea we started uh, thinking about in uh, March, just after Counterparty finished their proof of burn period, is to make an application that will make it easier for new people to enter inside the Bitcoin ecosystem. Us as Bitcoin users, I'm sure everybody relates that it's very hard to bring new people inside. Like the usual case, when I try to bring one of my friends inside the ecosystem, I go to blockchain info, I open him a Bitcoin wallet, then I need to explain to him about the public key and the private key about the user, a UX experience inside blockchain info. It's not very intuitive, all this process, and it usually takes about one to to two hours if you want him to be really safe, adding Google Authenticator and so on. So we uh, try to think about how we can do it very simplistic and very intuitive. And what we came up with is actually taking this process into social messaging. WhatsApp and messaging application, it's something that everybody is familiar with. I can explain it to my parents and I can also explain it to my younger brother. Everybody knows how to use it already. It's mainstream throughout the world. So taking the registration into 
mobile application, if we look, for example, at WhatsApp, what they did that was very clever is that the mobile number was also your username. So you automatically connect with all your friends very quickly. With Gems, your mobile number is not only your username, but it's also your Bitcoin wallet. So every user can open a Bitcoin wallet under 10 seconds. And his username is also alias to the wallet. So we're not even talking about public keys and private keys. Sending text messages or sending gems inside the system is very, very simple and very, very easy to do. One of the reasons we chose a social network messaging app is that if we compare this to other Bitcoin wallets, like I take a Hive, for example, that also have a pretty easy registration process, which is very similar to Gem. But I don't think there is really a space for a dedicated Bitcoin wallet. Mainstream users, most of them, you know, they don't have Bitcoins. They haven't used Bitcoins. They're a little bit scared regarding what they see in the news. So having a dedicated Bitcoin wallet is not enough. But having a wallet that is built inside a social application makes it a lot more interesting. So just by signing up in this 10 second process, you already can talk with your friends. You already earn a couple of gems, which you can start playing around, sending to your friends. And without even noticing, you're starting to use a cryptocurrency, which I think is very interesting. It's a very simple way to bring mainstream users to the Bitcoin ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by CryptoKit.com, the easiest, fastest way to spend Bitcoins right from your browser. Today's magic word is DING. That's D-I-N-G, DING. You've got until the 15th of November to visit Let'sTalkBitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iPhone app and enter it for your share of the listener rewards. is a chat application for text chatting with your friends on mobile devices. Does it work on uh, all platforms or is it iOS or Android specific? Specifically now we have an alpha version for iOS. It will take us a little bit more time to duplicate it also uh, to Android. And obviously we would like to have down the line also a desktop uh, application. So it's a messaging application. It's a wallet, so it has the ability to hold gems which is a token built-in counterparty and then it also has the ability to hold bitcoin yes can it hold other tokens besides that because it's built on top of counterparty it can actually hold any tokens that we think the users would like in the beginning we're going to start only with gems and uh, bitcoins because we don't want to confuse the users but later on of course we're going to listen to the community and we can add uh, more tokens I'll probably add one thing. I, I think one thing that got us really excited about working uh, with Team as our very first project is the fact that I think Gems first and foremost, I think it's a decentralized social network. When you traditionally look at Facebook type of network, it's very centralized. You're free to use, but on the other hand, Facebook are free to sell your data to whatever you know advertisers they would like to. But now in the Gems network, you completely own your own data. You have total freedom to control how much data you want to expose or no data at all. 
And in a case where you do choose to expose your data, uh, the advertisers, when they send you an ad, which they have to buy Jam's token to send you, they can't spend you, you know, for free, you actually do paid out. There's no middleman taking a cut in between. I think that's a very powerful paradigm. When you look at products like Allo, right, they're completely on the side of protecting privacy. Well, that's one choice. But on the other hand, I think Jam can encapsulate that. The other option is for users who don't really care, myself included, receive an ads, you know, you've got a chance to get a payout. Those, I think, nicely establish a monetary value for Jam's token, but more importantly, gives the full control of the user. It's basically turning privacy into economics question rather than a political standing, which is probably, you know, too extreme to certain users. Okay, so I heard the token come into play there. So let's let's walk through one of these scenarios. So I use Gems as a messaging application on my phone with my friends. I don't have any Gems, but I want to receive some. And so in order to do that, I can opt in to receive. I mean, so, so like, do I get a note saying that someone wants to send me an advertisement and this is what it'll pay me? Or do I just like set a check a setting and then I'm opted into those? Whenever a message shows up, then I get some sort of payout. Or, or did you say that it was winning a payout and like not all transactions might have that? So if you compare it to regular altcoin that has its own blockchain, they need to incentivize the miners for their protection of the blockchain. Advantage because by using counterparties that we have the protection of the Bitcoin blockchain. So we can incentivize what we want inside the network. So currently you're rewarded with gems for your network contribution, which means a couple of things. One, if you invite friends to the network, you and them are rewarded with gems just for growing the network. We incentivize adding users to the network. I think it's very important. Every social network is built around their user base, uh, reaching a critical mass of users. The second thing we incentivize, like Tom said, is actually if you're participating, if you're actively using the application, if like using regular messages and not encrypted messages. So basically advertisers can use uh, information and send you uh, unsolicited messages with advertising that is specifically targeted to you. If you would like to watch them, you get paid directly from the advertiser. And if you don't like to watch advertising, you can always opt out. So it's a whole economy starting inside the application that is a partnership between the users and the advertisers without the actual company taking profit in the middle if you compare it to Facebook, for example, or other social networks. And I just want to clear it out that um, sending messages to your friends inside the application will always be free, just like WhatsApp. But sending unsolicited messages, let's say you, Adam, had a public username in GEMS and people wanted to ask you questions. It starts to be an attention economy. You can basically say, okay, anybody can send me an unsolicited messages, but it will cost them, I don't know, 100 GEMS in order for me to see it. And then it makes things very interesting because if I, for example, or you or Opera, for example, tells us email, she would get spammed right away from everyone in the community. But if it was based that in order to speak with somebody that you want to speak to, you have to pay them what he thinks is a coordinate for his attention, it makes things very interesting. The same with the advertisers. Right now, advertisers can't just spam the users with their own content. If users want to see those advertisers, the advertisers actually have to pay them specifically. That actually, you, you answered my question before I asked it. How is the rate set? So it sounds like the rate is set on almost a per user basis. 
And then it is the advertiser that determines whether or not it is worth offering it to them because they might demand too high a price. Is that right? That's right. I, I want to point out that we are still working on the exact mechanism. So uh, I won't be able to give uh, accurate answers, but we do have models that we're working on, uh, potential uh, advertising models. Is such a system as you want to develop going to be global? As in, would the price be the same? Would, like there's a global network price and you can, you know, if an advertiser wants to go through and send to 10,000 people, they can know that there's a fixed rate that they're going to pay to reach those 10,000 people, whether they opt in or not? Or is it on a per user basis? It sounded like you were describing a system that's per user, which again is very interesting because it kind of puts the conventional model on its head. But I, I'm trying to understand, so please just tell me what's correct. Sure. So it's actually, it works both ways. Users will be able to set a specific number in order for people to send their unsolicited messages. We're working on that side. But on the advertising side, it's going to work a little bit like uh, Google Ads. We're going to have a web page, which uh, you can have a lot of categories for your direct audience. So obviously, if you very, very direct and you want more information regarding your users, it's going to cost you more. And if you want to send unsolicited message to a broader audience, but maybe not specifically for what you're looking for, it's going to cost you less. So it's being used already by Facebook and by Gmail, this kind of mechanism. Let the advertisers have a playing field, exactly what they are looking for with their advertisers. So Daniel, why did you pick Coinify as the platform to work on? What was, I mean, was this always your plan to use a platform to launch or did Tom convince you? How did this play out? Actually, Coinify is uh, pretty new in the field. I didn't know them before uh, August. Tom reached out to me in Skype uh, because he thought James is an interesting project and we started to talk. And once I realized what Coinify is trying to do in the industry, I think they're doing something amazing because they're totally raising the bar regarding crowdfunding in the crypto space. I think also, like Tom said, comparing it to Kickstarter, having a milestone base, I think is very clever. It's very fair towards the, the buyers, towards the users. And for our team, because we are public and because we believe in our team and we believe in our product, we feel very comfortable taking this kind of higher milestones, a higher uh, responsibility because uh, we believe in it very much. And I think it works for both sides. On one hand, it gives users uh, insurance or so-called, and but it also helps us for our credibility because Tom team is doing a very in-depth due diligence and showing it to the public. They have the multi-sequences which protect uh, the money, which is obviously important for investors. For me as a buyer also, I'm, I feel pretty scared buying a product to somebody I'm, I don't have too much information, which is from a different country. Having this check and balances, I think uh, is very important. And we related to it a lot when we heard about the project and started to know better the Coinify team and what they're doing. So Gems is getting ready to launch its crowd sale. Um, can you talk to me about that? Why would I want to buy Gems? Why is this the way that you've chosen to fund Gems? If you compare Gems to most altcoins out there, I'll take, for example, Litecoin because it's pretty popular and is well known. Litecoin currently has $120 million market cap, about 1,000 gigahash hash rate. But when I think about it, I don't really know what does this symbolize is like, what is the reason for Litecoin having such a big market cap? What is the reason for putting so much money into hash rate? 
How many users Litecoin has? What can you buy with Litecoin? All these questions are questions that I find difficult to answer. But with GEMS, it makes it much, much more simple because what GEMS uh, represents is actually users. You know, the inflation in GEMS to protect the network and so on, it's to reward the network growing. And I think us as uh, users are, can relate to what we're trying to build, which is a network of users that have a big incentive in their reward model in the network. Because unlike WhatsApp and Facebook, that they use your information to sell it to advertisers, which is uh, a lot of money, but you're not seeing anything out of it. With our model, you're only getting paid by the advertisers. So it's a partnership. That's one reason. The second reason is actually bringing new people inside the Bitcoin ecosystem, which I think all the crypto, the Bitcoin community is one of their goals. Like right now, if you talk with your friend, it will be much more easier for him to get him inside opening a Bitcoin wallet because you tell him it's just WhatsApp that you can earn money using it. And on the way, you already have a Bitcoin wallet and a gem wallet, which is something, it's a tool I think uh, the community wants to build. And the third thing, I think it opens uh, very interesting possibilities because once you have a social network with a built inside token system, a lot of interesting things can happen like uh, e-commerce or like paying for somebody's attention or let's say you're a magazine and uh, you want subscribers. Subscribers actually paying you to send them uh, the magazine once uh, a week, once a month. So it opens a lot of doors once you connect network and a talk system inside it. And I think it's much more interesting if you compare it to the regular altcoins that we're used to, that most of them talk about the mining, the protection, the things like that. I think uh, in here, we're trying to create something new. Yep. And if I were to just quickly summarize it, I think what Daniel talked about was to value, why would I ever you know, wanted to buy a chance token? I think it usually fall into three or four different categories. Number one is the people who are advertisers. We have basically jammed addressing the typical advertising markets, which is $100 billion market a year. And these are the advertisers who think that you know they can buy gems now. And if they believe in a gems future, they should buy now so they can add, basically get a higher value of the advertising for at a lower cost at this time. It's basically discounted advertising for them. The second type of group of people would be people who actually want to use gems on a personal level. It's basically you and I who want to send gems to each other. You know, think about a scenario where, let's say, we were talking on gems and say, hey, I just remember that I actually owe you a $20 lunch. Can I, you know, just pay you back? Instead of going to another wallet, start the application, I could just, you know, send you over gems on, on chat. And that's kind of a really powerful use case for a personal level. The third type of people, obviously, you have is the typical speculators or people who believe that, you know, gem has a bright future and therefore they want to invest in it right now which is obviously in all altcoins, but I think this is really powerful specifically because you have the number one, number two type of uh, users who don't necessarily rely on speculation at all. I don't disagree with any of the points either of you have made, but there are a couple of things that I'd like to get into a little bit further. One is that all of this is kind of predicated on success. So while I totally agree with you that, yes, that's the case, it's sort of as difficult to use. I mean, like, so all of these tokens are bootstrapping projects, right? You're trying to, it's, it's both the incentive to do it, and it's also the free thing that you get to give out, and it's also the monetization, um, or at least part of the potential monetization. 
But one of the things that differs is that because GEMS is a counterparty-based token rather than something like Litecoin, one of the primary advantages that Litecoin has is that it requires Litecoin rather than Bitcoin in order to use its network. So how are you dealing with transfer fees? Because if a big portion of your initial use group is people who don't have Bitcoin necessarily, how are they able to use GEMS within the system? Are you giving them to them? Yes, so it's it's important to note that the GEM applications serve two different target audiences. One is the audience that already has Bitcoin and is very familiar with it, and he will be able to have a much more easier way to use his Bitcoins because it's a wallet inside a social network, so you can just send it to his friends very easily. But the other users are new users to the system. They don't have any Bitcoins. So just by using the network, they will receive GEMs, which they can use for in-app services like sending unsolicited messages and more things and the gems are going to be often because what you said there is that the tax fee that uh, regarding the bitcoin blockchain and obviously if gems becomes mainstream and a lot of users are entering the network every day we don't want to pay all these fees to the bitcoin networks so basically there is a ledger off-chain that rewards the user for the contribution. By any time, they can actually send a text fee ID to transfer the gems to the Bitcoin ledger. It makes it obviously more secure and more decentralized. Okay, but, but you are actually providing a centralized off-chain exchange service, essentially, or uh, at least account service, yeah, basically, is what it sounds like. compare it a little bit to Coinbase. Coinbase, all the transactions inside are off-chain. That saves them a lot of fees and a lot of trouble. But once somebody wants to, you know, send it outside Coinbase, they actually do a Bitcoin transaction to have it on the ledger. So we're doing the same thing uh, with gems. That way we can actually reward uh, users and go the, the network the way we want to to mainstream use. But we do give the users the choice to convert these gems at any time to the Bitcoin blockchain. And we are actually also working to have a partnership uh, with one of the big players in the Bitcoin industry in order to reward users for signing up for their servers and receiving a small amount, like $5 a month of uh, BTC. So they can actually, just by signing, they will have not only gems, but also BTC in solid to convert these gems. So the other question that I have, um, and you know, <laughs> these aren't really questions quite so much, it's become very trendy and tempting to whip out names like WhatsApp or Facebook. But the reality is, and I think we're all aware of it, that the vast majority of companies that try to do what you're doing fail at what they're doing because a lot of it is about achieving that network effect. It seems like you are at least partly trying to deal with this with this rewards program and with all of these different incentivization systems. But I'm curious, Tom, you know, how do you view this? How important is finding critical success to this project relative to even getting all of their crowdfunding money? I mean, have the have the milestones been defined? Are there fail states possible here for simply the service not catching on? Yeah, I think it's a fantastic question. Uh, that's a part of the criteria that we look at different projects. So when you look at, I think, crowd sale or crowdfunding, one of the biggest advantage, I think even sometimes more important, more than the money, is really the network effect is how much seed user, the base user. The hardest part of any startup is zero to a thousand user, or in a consumer case, might be zero to a hundred thousand. But that's really the hardest part. It's not your one million to one billion user usually. 
social messaging, social uh, network. That's basically the ultimate network effect that you could ever have, you know, other than money. So when you look at that kind of use cases, I think crowdfunding is what probably benefits the most in terms of that growing seed future. And that's why we kind of favor, even if, let's say, Jammed had a choice today of taking, let's say, $1 million VC money versus $1 million, you know, crowdfund money, I think we should almost always want you want for this crowdfund as long as the diversified user base. Both gives them incentives, it gives them the incentive to try out the app and promote the app to their friends. I think it's a kind of the power that CrowdSale has. That alone, I think, gives a lot more success probability to something that is actually pretty challenging, extremely competitive in terms of social network. From the regulatory compliance side, I do have a question about the, so the function of, of holding customer, you know, or not customer, but of holding user crypto in an offline thing, that is something that Coinbase does. But Coinbase is also one of the most funded companies with the best banking relationships in the country. So does this make you a money transmitter? Do you have any concern about regulatory exposure, you know, just simply because of the way that you're, you're holding the funds? Or is this a non-issue that I'm just concerned about? That's a question for whoever feels comfortable to answer it. I'd like an answer, but you know, if there's no answer, that's fine too. <laughs> yeah, uh, from, from our Quantify, I can start from Quantify side and, and Daniel can talk about from Jan's perspective. From our perspective, I mean, the multi-sig wallet, uh, actually we have two part of that flow, right? From one side, we take Bitcoins in. So all the funds that are stored in that wallet, we don't hold any key part of that. These are the arbitrators and the developers. On the other side is we have our own wallet service to hold these jams tokens and other type of app tokens for the user. On that side, we have the user hold two of their own keys, and then we have one key that is held by a third security company. So in both cases, we don't hold any keys to the user wallet. All we're providing is really a basically a multi-stick service, a kind of nice UI for, for the blockchain technology. We're not really concerned about Okay, so if the GEMS organization winds up going away then, then the users can use the two keys that they have to recover it without needing necessarily the third key. Is that right? Or is this the three of three? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. That's exactly right. Okay, cool. Well, that does seem to address some of the uh, some of the issues. So, Daniel, tell me if you succeed with this, is this something that's going to be forked and there will be lots of these messaging protocols out there? Or do you think that this becomes, you know, like a big solution that solves a lot of these problems? Kind of paint the picture for a year, 18 months out, if it's even possible to think that far. I think one, it's going to be a little bit hard to fork it because we're talking here about the network effect. If James succeeds, they're already going to have a, quite a big network, which is hard to fork. It's not forking a code. It's actually trying to build a competing community, which isn't easy. The second thing, um, there is actually a lot of cost to building the application themselves. If you're talking about the iOS, which is built in native, if we're talking about the Android application, which is built in Java, it's actually being built really to the best standards, just so you have an experience like WhatsApp, that everything is, is super fast and no bug and so on. So even if somebody would to copy the actual source code, they still have a, a long time to build the actual application and do the QA and so on to reach this standard of usability. So comparing to other altcoins, I think it's going to be very difficult to focus. Our project. I think in general, it seemed to be like a overly concerned myth that someone could just fork my code over and then just create another success or overtaken that. So far, we have seen quite a bit of attempts to do that. You know, you see Doge Party, you have Ethereum, all these kind of cases, but none of them has exceeded original. I think it fundamentally comes back to 
Because when people purchase token or become a part of the community, they're really betting on the team and uh, the core core team behind it more than anything else. That's not different from a startup. It does make it a little easier. You have a code base. Let's use a proprietary example. Say I just copied every single line of code from Facebook.com today. Would I be able to create another Facebook.com? I think we're really far from that, right? The code base is just a, a small part of it. It's really the team behind it that's continually uh, innovating. It's the velocity of innovation that really matters. And that's not something you can clone easily. So the project is GEMS. The platform is Coinify. Gentlemen, thanks for coming on to talk about this. I guess this is really a question for each of you individually. Tell me about, you know, if people want to learn more about your platform or learn more about your project, where do they go? We're recording this at the end of October, but I think that the crowdfund is starting uh, later. You know, it probably will, will have started by the time this airs. So just kind of update people about uh, where to go to get more involved. And also if you're looking to hire anybody too. Sure. Uh, so the crowdfunding will be happening on www.coinify.com, K-O-I-N-I-F-Y.com, and starting with a K. It's not the one with C. We are always looking for great crypto talents, especially on, on the engineering side, uh, on the back end. From GEMS side, you can read information on getgems.org. That's our domain. And obviously, we would like people to join the discussion on our Bitcoin talk thread. If you write a gem social messaging app, uh, you should find it very easily. There's actually quite a big community there and uh, a lot of discussion. And regarding hiring, we're actually looking for an expert inside the crypto community to do the audit for the code. So if anybody is interested, uh, they can ping me and we would love to talk. Thanks for listening to episode 161 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's episode was provided by Tom Ding, Daniel Pellet, and Adam B. Levine. Music for today's show was provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. This episode was edited by Adam B. Levine. We'll see you next time.